In this episode, Ryan and I sit down and give a behind-the-scenes glimpse and a recap of the first-ever Banking with Life live event. We had fun and hope you enjoy listening. Thank you. Welcome to the Banking with Life podcast. I'm your host, James Nethery. And I'm your co-host, Ryan Grace. Excited to be here at the world headquarters, undisclosed location of the Banking with Life headquarters. It's good to be back. Feels like it's been a minute. It has been a minute. Mr. Griggs, it's always nice to see you. I appreciate you driving down here. Thanks. Yeah, likewise. (laughs) They finally decided to fix that part of uh, 35E South. Yeah. It's nice now. It only took five years i mean it's been tore up ever since i came out here well give them time they'll tear something else up i'm sure you know government contractor needs some money somewhere yeah the (laughs) brother-in-law okay so this is a week post our live event first uh, live event might need to work on the term live event by the way i'm just i mean it is a live event but i don't know something but yes first inaugural i mean the first banking with life client only client client event i have to stress client only because you know i posted about it on facebook going up leading up to it and so we talk about it and and you've shared stories the other advisors out there the other agents wanted all the information about the training event yeah (laughs) how many of those did you get because i a handful yeah we we got several Always at the last minute. Well, not always, but hey, how do I go to that training event? <laughs> Are you a client? Which we knew the answer to that question. No, no, I'm an agent. I just need the training. Yeah. Did you just skip right over the client only? <laughs> right. Uh, and then a couple of others. And God bless you. You all have an opportunity to become a client if you wish. Yeah. But, um. And then, too, it was the first Banking with Life live event. Maybe we can live stream it in the future. I think in a future – so two things there, right? One, there will be future events. Okay? I mean, we've talked, and at at this point, maybe at least annually. Yes. Yeah. Uh, And, yeah, I think – because we did a and a with you and me – at the towards the end of this one and that went well and in some of the feedback survey forms people pointed that out and i actually enjoyed it i think it's fun just you know take things on the spot and uh, but that, that was and so when i when we were up there talking i was like we should do a live streamed podcast there even take questions while we're going yeah you know Give AV Justin, AV Ninja Justin, a challenge to splice uh, another challenge. Talk about <laughs> look. Talk about the uh, AV Ninja challenge uh, challenges. Um, so this is a beautiful. This is a beautiful venue down or in, in the in Fort Worth, Texas, cultural district. Yeah, cultural district. It was in the botanical gardens. They have a beautiful lecture hall. You know, theater seating, nice stage, nice lighting can accommodate you know a lot of people um and now i and i have spoken that venue before the real estate thing so i mean i was aware Mm. and uh kind of why we wound up there um and we had gone twice the whole staff you know had gone to look at it two different times or or maybe the whole staff went one time and and the ab ninjas went a second time Mm -hmm. all right because they have beautiful 
audio visual capabilities they just didn't have a an av guy so anyway my whole point here is we show up you know we show up early and uh justin spends an hour because about after 15 minutes after our arrival he was informed that there was no sound in the house right yeah basically no audio capability at all none and so you know he spends an hour trying to figure out the board and try to trying to get any information from their AV guy, which was futile. And then, and then since there was going to be no success with that, <laughs> he drives down to our office in, in Alvarado's about 25 miles south of Fort Worth, gets our audio equipment. And uh, so that was probably an hour. So two hours out of his time mm-hmm. in that morning, and we only had two and a half hours to set up mm-hmm. at most, and which is plenty of time if everything's going okay. But talk about a challenge. That young man got it done. We captured the audio. We captured the video with no help from the venue. <laughs> so, um, And it was a, all a learning lesson for us. You know, it was a first client-only live event, no question, but – you know, Julie and I have done events for years and years. Most of the team has not had experience doing events. So it was all learning curve. And the uh, uh, clients really wouldn't have known that there was an issue had you not told them. That's yeah. how smoothly Justin met and conquered that challenge. Yeah. So I think it's okay to point that out, though. That <clears throat> point what o- out? Overcoming challenges absolutely and you know there's a lot of work going up leading up to the event and uh we had fun Mm -hmm. and you know of course you learn something that uh, that experience the learning experience will be rolled up and invested in applied to the next event yeah and clients have asked too whether the stuff was the talks were recorded it was recorded they will be available to my clients to your clients uh how exactly that's going to happen is in, in process, but it will be available to clients, to current clients. Yeah. yeah. And however long it takes to do the post-production, because, you know, Dr. Paul Cleveland spoke, he mm-hmm. wasn't able to stay for the Q and a, but, um, so there were three talks, a Q and a, and a lot of fun in between. Yeah. So about four, four and a half hours, maybe of, of talk time. And then, but over the course of a full day, so we made sure to leave a lot of time for people just to talk among themselves. And they were the whole time. You know, people got there early. And people who have thrown events know, like, to have people show up and stay the whole time is a challenge in and of itself. But to have people show up, stay the whole time, and then come to the very informal after party gathering. And that was a last minute. Uh, yeah, thrown in. Why yeah. not? Let's do it. People would want to. Many came and stayed. And of course, people had to get back on flights because, as we'll talk about, they flew in from all over the country. Mm-hmm. But and we didn't. We we did not really plan that until like three or four days prior to the event. Yeah, because clients were like, "Hey, are we going to do something afterwards?" Yeah, and, people were asking. Yeah, and it, I'm glad we did because there was a. You know, in-depth, intensive conversation afterwards. But then this kind of goes back to the whole idea. I mean, and you and I talked about this over the phone several times. It's like, how often 
do people who are practicing IBC and really practicing, right? They didn't buy the creatively designed policy off the internet to you know diversify their investment portfolio. And the one size they're, fits all. Yeah, they're seriously banking. You know, either having had started off or acquiring multiple policies, have multiple policies, practicing capitalism on an individual pragmatic level they are their own banker but how often do those people get to be in a room with 90 other people who are doing something of the same variety and get to share and talk and you had podcast guests clients who had previously been on they were there and my response to that was that there's just that there is no other no where else does that happen it doesn't happen no, you know talking leading up to the event you know i mean we've had I mean, we talk all the time, obviously, but, um, you know, when you put a talk together and I, we'll get into our talks too, how they came about and how they developed independently, it was, oh my gosh, it was unbelievable in my opinion. Um, and better than I thought it might be, but the value of taking the time out of your schedule, we're all busy, you know, our schedules are full to take the time out of your schedule on a weekend too. So now you're really cutting into personal time and business time because you're traveling on a Friday, mm-hmm. right? To fly across the country, hear three guys talk, and that's very valuable. I mean, where where can anyone go tomorrow, next week, and hear Dr. Paul Cleveland, Ryan Griggs, and James Nethery speak, number one? But – one of the greatest values, we talked about it, I had mentioned it, is to be exactly like you said in a room full of people that are doing the same thing. Because there were clients there that were just um, out of underwriting. Yeah. And I didn't get to speak to everyone there. But I know that um, I had clients there that were 10 and 11 years practicing this concept. Mm-hmm. And all at different levels. Mm-hmm. You know, real estate, you know, just personal, whatever their business, and the, such a diversity of businesses. Mm-hmm. You know, it was that is that's extremely powerful to get into a room, not like it, not as opposed to going to, um, you know, an infinite banking concept event where it's an introductory kind of first time you might have heard about it. No, no, Mm-mm. everybody there is paying substantial premiums in relation to what they do in their financial world and are applying their financing things. Mm -hmm. Where can you go and sit in a room full of people that are doing that without – you can't. You can't. And you can't put a value on that. And then, you know, to go somewhere – look, if you're practicing the infinite banking concept and you're paying a lot of premium or just a high premium and you share that with friends, Mm -hmm. you'll quickly learn that – they think you're crazy. You know, so then we all become a little bit reserved, mm-hmm. you know. I'm going to be very careful who I share this with, what I'm doing, because number one, I want to like get beat up. self-censoring, yeah. Yeah, self-censoring at all. And then to go from that environment, which is where we're all, you know, typically it's at. norm, yeah. Yeah, to a room full of people that, like, I get you. <laughs> I understand what you're doing. Yeah, I can't wait to pay the next premium either. Oh, I didn't know you were, you were, you're doing real estate notes. You're doing real estate, you're doing equipment, you're just building capital to uh, be properly capitalized. You're taking passive income. Mm. You're gifting policies to the next generation. 
wow, my kids are very little or we don't have children yet. I mean, that's powerful. So I uh, encouraged everyone to not leave without making new friends. And I believe that happened. Yeah. So. Absolutely. And you're referring to those little survey feedback forms and a lot of positive remarks. I mean, when you're on like the side of it where you're putting it on and you have the talk and you're wanting everything to go smoothly, it's kind of hard to. I mean, of course, I spend as much time as possible with people, but sure. to pay attention to how things are going overall, it's like, yeah, well, I don't know. We'll find out after the fact, you know? <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, they, they, you know, prior to the, you know, putting a talk together, uh, are, are these people going to, you know, these these are people that you're, they're your clients, you love them, they're friends, you know, um, is it going to be worth their time, effort, and energy? Yes, you know, them getting to meet other people, if that actually happens, and it did. But, you know, are the talks, are they going to walk away and feel good about, yes, the mm-hmm. money that I spent and the time that I've taken to attend and participate? Um, and then to get past it and look back and, and it's like, yeah, no, it really was. Yeah. I felt that pressure for sure. Somebody at, at, before I spoke asked me, he's like, is this a talk, the talk that you're going to give? Is that, you know, is this something you've done before or you've talked before? And I'm like, look, if... The people who have heard me speak most are the people who are in the room. Exactly. Because they've all listened to the podcast. And so I can't get up there and just say something I've said before. I mean, it's not going to be totally new out of whole cloth, but it's got to be something. It's got to be fresh. And so that was a big weight. I mean, big motivating factor in what I ultimately put together. Yeah. Um, and happy to see that a lot of people had nice things to say after the fact. Exactly. I was nervous. I was nervous that I was going to be pouring it on too heavy, like too intense on the economic side. Oh, well, there's a moment or two. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but no, but, they didn't expect anything different. Right. right. Exactly. And you and I talked before, and it's like, feel the pressure of wanting to deliver something new to these people who are extremely important to the business. And uh, it's like, you know, at the end of the day, we think that each of us believes and thinks that we've got something to say that people need to hear. And that's what you go do. That's what you go say. Isn't that the basis of a good talk, a good presentation? It's everything. I think it's everything. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, leading up to this, all right. uh, You know, I mean, I'm not, your PowerPoints are beautiful, all color coordinated, you know, and the, the, uh, the graphics, you know, it's just very good. I'm a straight black and white guy, right? <laughs> um, and it, and so Jess helped me uh, uh, tremendously putting the PowerPoint together. And just in the PowerPoint is really for me to stay on track, kind of. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I've got information up there and conveying it. But going back over when we originally, I'm like, okay, I'm gonna we're going to do a live event, and so we start talking, and I'm generally. I prefer to speak in the mornings, all right? And so I was going to talk. Like we are now, by the way. Right. I was going to talk first and then uh, have Dr. Paul Cleveland talk. And then you. Throw me at the end. Talk last, right? (laughs) After lunch, after everybody's carved up. Um, And then as our talks developed independently of one another, um, you know, Ryan's like, listen, you're going to have to. Uh, reorder the speaking, you know, yeah. uh, lineup. And the reason 
was because Dr. Cleveland, Paul, gave a very broad talk on broad economics and, and the history. Yeah. It was beautiful. Philosophy and the history of social thought, you know, like the origins and the path to this uh, psychopathic emphasis on critical race theory and all of that. Yeah. When you when he ties it back to the origins, that yeah. you know, where else are you going to hear that? Right. I don't know. Um, and then you spoke on the modern financial planning has failed. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, the the economic, identifying the problems of the economic world they, uh, that are attributable to the existence of fractional reserve banking, so business cycle and inflation, pointing out that the various conventional approaches to financial strategy don't even address those problems. They don't even address the underlying financial problems. And then how IBC is a natural cure to those explicit problems, which set me up to end on a more deeper discussion of the relationship between capital and opportunity. Because especially from current clients, but people who are advanced in the new client process, maybe they've just got policies, maybe they've just paid a premium. It's sort of like this hurry up and wait sort of feeling. I've, I've paid a bunch of premium, I'm building a bunch of cash value, now what? And we get, I get these questions all the time. Yeah. I'm sure you do too. What do I use policy loans for? How do I use policy loans? What should I be investing in? These kinds of questions. And my response to that is maybe counterintuitive. And it's, it's the opposite of this avalanche of online social media where everyone's got a mailbox money, cash flowing, passive real estate, passive alternative investment activity that you really need to be involved in and pay them for. And I mean, I, as I try, as I hope I expressed in the talk, you know, if some of that works for you, great. If that's your deal, great. Um, it, it is not for everybody. And, and the more, like the subject of my dissertation is capital theory. And then the last part is how my reinterpretation of Austrian capital theory affects or speaks to entrepreneurship. And the more I go down that rabbit hole, the more I see a link a, in, a, in a deeper and just more nuanced way, as Nelson originally pointed out, what that relationship is between capital and opportunity. And the, the more I do that, the more I see systematic and optimal accumulation of capital as the bridge into entrepreneurial activity. And unfortunately, people hear the word entrepreneur just like they hear the word life insurance and they think of all the preconceived ideas. They hear the word entrepreneur, they think, oh, Jeff Bezos. And it's like, yeah, no, the entrepreneurship comes in all varieties. You know, there are as many forms of entrepreneurial activity or as many different, let's say, manifestations of entrepreneurial uh, activity as there are different people. And so the things that people are doing to use loan, or the people that things are using loans for are things that you'd never think, like you'd have to sit down and like do a creative writing course to come up with some of this. And I, I even said at, towards the end of that talk that the there's a certain sort of, it's not like arrogance, but I mean, you've there. There are a lot of a lot of assumptions have to go in 
to the posture of a, a conventional financial advisor or one of these alternative people online telling you what the best investment is for you. Like, how do you, that, you really got to skip over a lot. And I, I mean that from a technical perspective, like the, the, in order to make a decision in the moment, we're comparing one opportunity to the next best, right? That's the idea of opportunity cost. And if we add in one little assumption, and I don't think it's an assumption, but if we just add in one little observation that the amount of capital that you have and the quality of your contractual control and access to it, if, if that in turn affects what you perceive to be an opportunity, then you don't, there's a sense in which you don't know what the next best opportunity is given this rising compounded cash value, capital, equity component to your financial profile. Like maybe the thing you should be doing, you don't yet have enough capital to do. And so maybe it's a matter of waiting and continuing to capitalize. Maybe not, but maybe, right? And so to say that, well, you got to go collateralize a bunch of cash value to take advantage of this cash flow idea that some, uh, you know, investment educator marketeer sent you in your inbox. It's like, okay, yeah, maybe, but is the cost of that, that you'll be insufficiently well capitalized to take advantage of the thing you should be doing in six months or a year? You know, so if, if we just add in this one little idea that the amount of capital you have access to and control over in turn affects the opportunity landscape as you see it, then I think it just adds to the idea that it's kind of naive to say that some advisor or investment pitcher or somebody is going to- I like the marketeer. Marketeer, marketeer. yeah. (laughs) Is going to tell you what you should be investing in. It's like, I don't know that, I don't think that's appropriate. You know, not from this perspective. Because the, the, and the things that people end up doing, I mean, I've talked about Jerry's, what's his last name? Stringer? Yeah. Who spoke before on the podcast. You know, he buys a commercial laser engraver, and then he uh, he gets a has a wood product manufacturer wanting him to and he's got so much work that he has to say no. It's like <laughs> who would have told him that? Like you know, like nobody would have told. That's him That's what that. he liked to do. That's yeah. his hobby that turned into a bigger business than he wanted to. And how natural and wonderful, you know, who wouldn't want that? That's exactly right. It's natural. I love that. It's the idea of patient capital. It's look, and when you have access to capital. Everything walking down the street that says it's an opportunity may not be an opportunity. Your idea, your perception, your ability to uh, determine what is or is not an opportunity sharpens. I mean, greatly. And then, look, you, 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 you pay life insurance, it's my opinion. You pay life insurance premiums long enough on a, you know, mutual with a mutual company that, that actually pays dividends and that are actually very strong and prudent and fidelity, you know, fidelis, right. Or honest mm-hmm. with their money. They're not playing games on their books on their P and L. It's like, you look at what a life insurance policy does. Boring, slow increase, incremental every day, increase in capital. 
every day increasing in value. And it's like, okay, now if I go put the money into real estate, you know, I've got a, I'm going to get a rate of return. And I, and I, I've said it many times, I hear it all the time. And, you know, uh, real estate investors, they don't do anything without making 20%. I love that, but they rarely talk about the fails. Okay. But if I, and I like real estate, I'm not opposed to real estate at all, but then you've got a taxes, insurance, you've got a management of the property and the people, the tenants. And then you look at the long term internal rate of return on a on a real estate portfolio over time. And you've mentioned it before that, you know, Ma and Pa going into the real estate business and all of a sudden you're like Jerry Stringer, you turned into a business that you're not really interested in running. Yeah, it does. Then that's the that's the problem with the whole alternative asset kind of mindset. It's like okay, that's great, but there's problems at scale. Yes, if you scale that up, you're talking about a profession change. Yeah, you're talking about a lifestyle change, and maybe that's what you want. And great, but as for somebody who likes what they do in generating income, that might not work. You know. <laughs> And yeah. so there's got part of my part of that part too was, you know the the tax call the the I call it um, you know buy Wall Street products through government programs <laughs> that has issues all the contribution lim- levels are so low and then so then you maybe you discard the government program you cap out on the government program so then you're just buying the Wall Street products okay well all of that's market correlated subject to the business cycle not solving for the cost of dependency on the banking system it's got its own problems so you go over to the alternative assets okay you can go to town you know get as much leverage as you want buy as much real estate as you want well what are the problems there well it's because there's a a difficulty at scale someone who's you know a high skilled professional in healthcare or a high skilled professional in whatever doesn't have time to have a second career managing 40 doors and so then you're going to pay someone. Okay, well, that's just another expense to that whole side of the thing. And it's not like you outsource uh, the management of the portfolio and then there's no work. It's now you get to manage the people who are doing the managing. And so it's like, if that's your deal, great. But with IBC, the extent of the management is let's get the annual statement out of the mailbox and then pay the premium. So that... There's a sense in which IBC as a financial strategy is more democratic. It's more uh, open. Like people of all kinds of lifestyles, the ones who are the investors, who we're going to go get that second kind of job or career profession, who we're going to make that transition. It's good for them. They still got to solve for exposure to the business cycle and dependency on the conventional banker. It's good for the W-2 employee. It's good for the high-skilled 1099. It's... like you've said before, very simply and accurately, it's jet engines on whatever it is you're already doing. You know, look at look if you've got a million dollars in the bank, it's probably the wrong place to have it. Okay, <laughs> I mean it could be that simple. But you know, whatever portfolio, I'm, I'm just saying real estate. <clears throat> it could be whatever investment portfolio. You know, the comparison, the alternative. Like, wait a minute. If I look at the long term internal rate of return, and I've done very well with real estate. Right. And, and I, I like alternative things. Um, but that life insurance portfolio continues to go up. Right. And then you look at the net, net, net internal rate of return. 
right? Because everybody's focused on a rate of return. And then you do that net, net, net comparison. And then you factor in your time, Mm. your experience, right? And the real estate investor rarely, rarely factors in their time, right? Um, Yeah, I'm okay with patient capital. And if I'm okay with patient capital and it's accumulating 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 368 days a year, okay? Uh, it's a matter of time before the proper opportunity has, there's a match with me, yeah. my time, my capital, and the opportunity. So it's not that we're saying that you shouldn't do these other things. Not at all. Mm-mm. You do whatever you want. Oh, wait a minute. The banker does get to do whatever they want, mm-hmm. right? Who has to go makes the rules. So the capital stock of a bank is money. So all the money that you can get into the life insurance that you can wrap your mind around and just be patient and let it accumulate. It's like, okay. And then what if, what if an opportunity never presents itself? Oh, am I going to be heartbroken? Which I don't believe that'll happen. But no, because I'll take passive income. I'll do whatever I want. I'll give it away, take passive income, do all of it, leave some to the next generation. And my time will be sitting back and enjoying that. Exactly. Peacefully you know? and yeah, all under your control. This was one other element too. Uh, <clears throat> Wall Street has this idea that you know, what counts as financial analysis is being able to tell a bigger number from a smaller number. Yeah, right. You know, observing <laughs> the difference in magnitude between two uh, numbers. You know, oh, eight is bigger than five. <laughs> therefore, eight is better. Yeah. It's, it's so... I, it, it's so patronizing, but it, a lot of the alternative guys and gals on YouTube and social media have implicitly, not like intentionally, they're not like teaming up with Wall Street, but maybe have. Well, they're not getting deplatformed. Well, they've picked this up, you know, and you, there's the titles all day on the YouTube programs, how to get 37.5 or 16 or 12, right? Pick the number. 140% right? rate of return. Seen that the other day. I wasn't looking for it. It was shared with me. <laughs> And then applied it to the IBC or IBC adjacent context. They say, look, dum dum, th- my my historical rate of return is a number greater than the rate of return on the policy loan. Mm-hmm. So obviously <clears throat> you should go do this thing. Yeah. Everybody and, else is doing it too anyway. You're missing uh, out. And that's where my th- view of wait, hold on. The 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 decision isn't 5% on the loan versus the prospective rate of return on the investment. And let's assume for the sake of argument that the prospective rate of return on the investment is legitimate. Maybe it's a <laughs> big assumption, but let's assume that. But that's not the comparison. No. The comparison is that number, which we're assuming is real, to what you otherwise could do with that loan money. It's not to the cost of the money. I mean, we get that. You, If you were to to take a policy loan and go invest, would you want a return greater than the loan rate? Yeah, of course, but that's not the decision, right? The decision is one opportunity as opposed to another. And so you got to compare to the other. Well, what's the other? Well, you don't really know. I mean, at a given moment in time, you might say, oh, well, you know, this thing out here at 8% or whatever rate of return is greater than the loan rate. Okay. So maybe I should do that. Okay. Fine and good. Well enough. But it might also help to look at where we are in the business cycle. It might help to think about, well, at what, you know, and I had people, and I asked this question, but I had somebody come up to me after my talk and say this, and he's like, you know, 
it was at the after party, Austin. He was, he said, you know, what would it be like if I was walking around knowing I could get to 500 grand? What would that be like? What would look like an opportunity right. to me then? That's a great question. And and what is, and I, I've asked that sometimes to people. It's like, you know, and you look at the cash value growth, you know, at current dividend rates and assuming a certain premium, you can see generally what cash values could end up being like if you paid a certain amount of premium and with a certain kind of company. It's like, that's going to be you in X or Y number of years. What's that going to be like? How much of that cash value do you want collateralized when you get there? Right? How much of that cash value do you want collateralized in loans out with the investment pitcher, marketeer who's sending you newsletters? Hmm, I don't know. Right? How well how much of your cash value do you want collateralized when we go into one of the fractional reserve banking boom bust cycle recessions or depressions? When everything goes on sale for half off. <laughs> you know, how much of your powder do you want to be dry? How much of it do you want it already collateralized? Yeah. You know, it might, the wise idea may be to say, yep, I acknowledge that that rate of return and I'm sure that that advertised rate of return is legitimate and it's greater than my policy loan rate and all that's fine. But I think there may be a better opportunity on the horizon. So I'm going to exercise my authority as a, uh, individual practicing the infinite banking concept who is their own banker and i'm going to not do that you know it's the uh there's just don't stand there do something well you could turn that around just don't do something stand there you know patience patience is a virtue you know the just practicing life throughout life um maybe i'm going to miss a deal so <clears throat> i'm just building capital I'm okay with it being patient. You know, I, uh, I'm okay being patient and having patient, readily available, accessible, on-demand capital. Um, maybe I miss a deal. Mm. I mean, I look back and I miss several deals. You know, so I should have done that. And it was, you know, couldn't wrap my mind around it at the time, but it would have been a home run. You know, and then, you know, you drive by those houses or whatever the deal is maybe it's an airplane or a boat or whatever um am i okay with that yeah because that ain't the last deal that's going to come and present itself right right um and and just like the bigger number if i borrow at five and maybe this opportunity like you said if it is legitimate if you even get a return of your capital that works, and now we're talking about a greater rate of return above your capital. Yeah, so an actual net return. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, the alpha. and uh, It's like, well, if I'm accessing my capital at five, and I already know what it's going to do. I have an idea of what it's going to do. Dividends go up, dividends go down, and I'm okay with what it's going to do if I do nothing. For me then to collateralize one of the greatest assets that I own, to go in your example – enjoy a three percent gross rate of return because <laughs> that's still taxable income to me it's a hard no okay so now if i'm going to go out and i'm going to get 10 15 20 percent rate of return what's the risk yeah. you know and what's the real probability of that happening i'm not saying it doesn't happen of course it happens um yeah i'm okay being patient <clears throat> and i'm okay missing a deal or two right because i couldn't wrap my mind around it uh but i'm also okay if I do take advantage of leverage in other situations, that I've got patient capital in sufficient quantities that I can maintain the leverage that I do have. Mm -hmm. What's that worth? 
Well, whenever, you know, of course, we've all said, you know, and you've heard that this is more caught than taught. Um, it's been my experience over the last 31 years that people have, that have gone through, uh, you know, repossessions, foreclosures, bad business arrangements, partnerships not working out, you know, and, and you know, God bless you, divorces, which that might not be a good example, but there's asset swapping hands. Right? Mm-hmm. When, when your assets are removed from your possession, right, somebody else that – and – Somebody else controls your access to capital, Ooh. and then somebody else is what you're, you know, uh, speaking toward on the investment guru. Somebody else presents you the opportunities, right? Because dumb dumb, you can't figure out what an opportunity mm-hmm. is. It's like all of that is a hard no. Hard thank you, and then the. The marketeers, I really like that, right? The marketeers that say you got to do this and you got to do that and 140% ready return. I seen one the other day. They stopped me because I spend too much time looking at them, I guess. Uh, the ads on, you know, Facebook and social media. I seen one. If you're an accredited investor with $300,000, we have a $60,000 annual rate of, you know, return. I put in three hundred and I get 60000 a year every year. <laughs> yeah okay right and yeah. you are a great marketer on facebook or whatever it is it's like yeah no thank you yeah no thank you one of the sort of transformations in my own thinking as time has gone on my tolerance for things that i don't feel that i fully and deeply understand has fallen off a cliff i mean i think the isn't it funny how the more capital you have yeah. Those things that you thought you wanted or Sudden, were opportunities are like, nah. Yeah. Suddenly no. I'm not okay because I'm okay. Right? Exactly. And so, no, on, you know, anything that makes me side eye or like, hmm, I don't get that. It's like gone, gone, <laughs> you know, because I don't, don't need it. Is that part of your criteria yep. to determine? Absolutely. Uh, and absolutely. Uh, I have mentioned it before, you know, we're brought up in this sort of financial paradigm of systematic, severe undercapitalization and class immobility. It's really, there are class implications to all of this uh, where it's fight or flight and we're this far away from financial deprivation. And so it's, you know, everyone's wound tight. And just like Nelson would point out, money is the, one of the leading factors of stress and stress is one of the leading factors contributing to all sorts of medical problems. We're all bound up and just like an animal, when they're backed into a corner, you think you got to react and it's all yeah. instinctive and it's not Survival. contemplative or deliberate or any of that. Well, when you start to, when you walk out from that corner and you establish your financial domain where you're in control, then suddenly that pressure, that tension to be, to, to move fast, to be the mover and shaker it just dissipates. It just dissolves away. <laughs> Nelson says it's a very stress-free way of life. Yeah. But then to be able to walk into a room full of people that are either there or on their way there, mm. they've recently made the decision <laughs> that I want to be in that position, but nobody else is, is – uh, I can't get the reinforcement that my decision to go down this path is a legitimate decision. 
And to the point where I can't share it with other people, mm-hmm. even though I love them and I want them to do well. And right to go from that narrative and walking into a room full of people, there's a oh, 105, 103, 105 people there. There's like 13 of us or so. Mm-hmm. Uh, talk about stress free. Not only now can I relax, right? And I know you're paying a premium. I know they're paying a premium and everybody there is paying. The AV guy's paying a premium. You know, the team members are, you know, (laughs) everybody's paying premium. So it's not this foreign idea. All of a sudden, I'm not the leper. Right. You know, it's like, what's that worth? And that's why, part of the reason, that we're going to continue to do events. You know, you said annually, you know, we've agreed annually and uh, because I wanted to do other events as well. Um, And my team... They've already like thrown it out there. It's going to be in the spring. I'm like, listen, annual is like Dang, be spring, a- <laughs> yo. That's in a few months. Eh? <laughs> um, I like cool weather, but um, yeah, you know, it's just an incredible value. Because I, I always relate back to when I first discovered the infinite banking concept. Um, you know, no one, and I'd been a life insurance agent you know, moderately successful, practicing, you know, an investment advisor, 14 years. And, and I'd never heard about this. Never heard. No, no one in the life insurance industry ever said, James, look at what you can do with life insurance when you solve for your need for banking, which none of the marketeers want to talk about who's controlling the banking function. Right. And then, uh, you know, you get to meet Nelson. That was the only time, really the only opportunity that you had to really dive into this idea of becoming your own banker, listening to Nelson's 10-hour live presentation somewhere. And, and you know, at the time, he I think he was doing 30 to 40 a year. Um, and and he, he's only one man, uh, which I, my point here is that you couldn't really find too many people that were doing this. Yeah. And now you fast forward, you know, 16 years later, you go online and there's IBC this and, you know, Nelson's name's rarely rarely mentioned. If it is, it's just to say, oh, I'm doing what they're doing, which may or may not be true. Um, it, it's a different world from then to now. And that ability to walk into a room, meet people. What are you doing? This is what I'm doing. Where are you from? How long have you been doing this? And blah, blah, blah. Oh, my gosh. Well, and from all – like a good ex- illustration of that is how geographically dispersed Let, these people were. I know you took down a bunch of the states. It's on the back of a yellow oh, piece yeah. of paper. I just <clears throat> – because I knew that they were coming from all over the country. I – I even said this twice. The only reason why I'm here is to meet you. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, it was the first legitimate opportunity that I've had to meet clients face to face. I feel like I know them. I know a lot about them. They feel like they know me, but we never met. Right. Okay. So Arkansas, Alaska, Alabama, Arizona, California, Hawaii, New Mexico, Colorado, Nevada, New York, New Jersey, Texas, of course, Oklahoma. Michigan, Mississippi, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Georgia, and Florida. Those are the ones that I know. That we can think of. <laughs> All right, that, that's 20 states. So there were over 20 states represented because I know I missed one or two. And, and, you know, I asked you the other day, I'm like, okay, listen, where 
could someone go and meet a hundred people that are doing this from these various states and hear Dr. Paul Cleveland, hear you and hear me and, and meeting each other. Where could that be done? And the closest that I got, well, maybe the Nelson Nash Institute uh, think tank. There might be 20 states represented. I don't know. Yeah. But then they're, you know, they're all agents. They're not consumers, right? And then, you know, I did point out that there's probably more premium being paid in that one. (laughs) (laughs) How far are we into this? So, you know, the people who think that these are too long and drop off might not hear that. 45 <laughs> but it's the opportunity for you agent to pay a higher premium okay that's my encouragement it's all love peace and changes <laughs> right yeah and i want to say this too because on the state thing because i'm very appreciative for the people who find me because they see i'm in rockwall texas and they're somewhere nearby right you know, wiley heath uh even in the broader dallas area Carrollton, Irving, Plano. I, for those people, that, and that's how they found me. I'm grateful for that. Okay, you're just grateful to be found, sir. I am. But part of I don't, and I think it's maybe just due to a general lack of understanding about how licensure works in this country uh, for life insurance agents. But the and the way the NNI practitioner finder is, is set up, it's like organized by state. Mm-hmm. And I'm not, I don't know that there's a better way to do it. I'm not saying I have an alternative way, but all the st- life insurance is licensed by individual state insurance commissions, and they're all reciprocal. So, so long as you pay the little bribe to the commission in the out of state place where the agent doesn't live. They check to make sure that everything's in good order in the home state and the license is issued. No problem. So I've got people, and I'm sure you're in every single one of the 50. I think mine, I'm up to like 44 now and all over. And so the. So you're more thankful for the people, regardless of where they live, that contact you? Yeah, I, well, not more, but like just, I think some people think that they've got to look in near or around where they happen to be and look if that's what you want to do okay i'm not saying don't i'm just saying you don't have to do it that way you can find the person you want to watch and this it because sometimes let's just i'm going to be very honest about it it puts me in an awkward position when like last week have a guy who's out of state who found IBC, found Becoming Your Own Banker, read the book, and went and found somebody who was local, got in through the process, and started to feel uncomfortable. Hmm? And then contacts me and essentially asks me to check the other agent's work. That is awkward. And I don't like do. I'm not... I'm not asking for that. Don't send me that. You know, I will t- spend 20 minutes with anybody. I will answer general questions. So send the, it to him, but he's only going to spend 20 minutes on it. That's what I'm hearing. No, that's not <laughs> what you're hearing. <laughs> that is the opposite of what you're hearing. <laughs> I will answer general questions, but the whole checking other people's work, yeah. I am not, that's not what I'm called to do. It's, I don't want to step on. And I have, 
a particular way of doing this that I learned from you, that I learned from Nelson, that I integrate with my understanding of capital and and then my own experience with my own policies. And the result of that- Isn't that the way it should be? Yeah, the, the result of that is a pretty particular philosophy on how this is done, how the policies should, how the company should be evaluated, how the premium structure should be selected, how the premium level should be selected, how the number of policies should be selected, how the system might naturally expand. Like I've got a particular view on all of that stuff and the likelihood that it matches exactly what somebody else is doing is zero. Like it's never, I've never seen, and it's like, hmm, you know, this, this. so it's, there's going it's to be, it's awkward, you know, and I don't, I'm not interested in stealing other people's clients. I know everyone's all, you know, white knuckled about that. You know, I'm going to steal some, I don't care. You know, I would just prefer that people implement in a, with the correct foundation so they can grow sustainably and organically and naturally out into the future and that they'll be okay, you know? So it's, it's a uncomfortable kind of situation. And I think that, you know, look, if you like what I say, if you like what James says and our particular philosophies or style or whatever, then you need to contact me or you need to contact him. It needs, we need to connect directly because I'm not going to train another agent through you. It's awkward for you. It's awkward for the agent. It's awkward for me. It is and 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 then most of the time doesn't even and it, it, there's not a follow through, right? You'll hear a conflicting opinion. Then there will be another conflicting opinion, and there will be no change, and it'll just be a whole bunch of awkwardness and time wasted on everybody's side. Well, did any education happen? Because you've done this, yeah. I times. got to we've talked about it. You know, you, you've talked about it a few episodes. You know, I don't know which ones, but yeah, I get to learn what other <laughs> advisors are doing. <laughs> Listen, we all pay for our education, right? Uh, but yeah. did the client learn anything, or the you know? I think so. I mean, I said <clears throat> it was a bizarre case. I, I'm he, not actually. I mean, for details on that one, but you by all means share whatever you want to share. But I'm just saying, all the structures were different. Hmm. weird numbers hmm. okay and i asked why i'm like one of the most powerful questions ever yeah by the way 10 policies 10 policies all right we get starting the details off, anyway <laughs> first it's an unusual the guy's starting off doesn't own any other life insurance not doing it. Hmm. first start off for ibc he's married 10 policies first start makes a lot of money you know seven figures great uh 10, 10 policies big, 10 big policies yeah Five different companies, two each, 10 policies. Hmm. And I'm like, I already know why, 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 why. why. <laughs> yeah, why, why. <laughs> and so I asked him, like, what, why? And it was a little bit, of, come to find out, it was a little bit of everything. Yeah. Right? One structure, heavy to yeah. the base. The other one, little itty bitty base, you know, as little as possible. Well, direct recognition, non direct recognition. Right, all over yeah. the place. Yeah. So, diversity, shot, shotgun approach. Yeah. Oh, no, a, the agent knew what he was doing. I, could, I mean, the question is why. He couldn't answer the question why maybe he could, he, he shared. He his, shared how it led up to it, right? Right. It was, I asked the guy what he would do yeah. if he was in my position starting over from day one. That's a great question. And this was, yeah, fine question. Yeah. And then this was the proposal. And I said, yes. Yeah. And that's where I'm like, okay, well, 
maybe why that like why those companies why those structures and and then of course too the premium the total payable premium across all five was going to equal his income of course that's where i want to start for the first year see i i I know why from the agent's perspective why I mean, I could I could break that down step by step of why that was presented to him. What would that look like? Because I don't. I mean, what I would think of is. So you got all these contractual relationships, which okay, great. Uh, So you want to spread around the business to the different companies. Diversity. Okay, and then and then there's reasons and underwriting. There's all kinds of reasons that that's wrong, but um, and not how to properly start. So what. What was the what was the result? <laughs> well, I said, look, direct recognition's out. I mean, I don't know what to tell you. I don't leave the dang dividend alone. There's enough onslaught on dividends, overall financial surplus, yields throughout the economy. Anyway, this is the one place where we have total control over it. Leave it alone. Did he have so, any index dividend options? I'm just asking. Or did you get that deep? I didn't look at the actual illustration, so I don't know. But two of the big four companies, I'm I'm sure that was part of it. Well, a couple of the companies, because you know I've heard some more of the background of yeah. that. But I'm, some of those, a couple of those companies have the the uh, ability to elect an index dividend. Yeah, where you get to multiply your dividend. Yeah, yeah, in exchange for direct recognition, right? Yeah. Well, maybe on a direct recognition company, but there, there's a company on that list that, you know, they came out about four or five years ago and sent a letter to all the policyholders. Hey, you have the opportunity to elect um, an index dividend. And so for which there's a cost, Yeah, there's a cost and there's an opportunity cost. It's like, wait a minute. The dividend is the financial experience of the life insurance company. Okay, so when they're profitable, there's a higher dividend. They're less profitable, lower dividend, if they're honest, right? So you want me to put my money into a company that's not profitable or not well run, um, or you want me – you're implying that you're not going to be profitable and that an index to the S&P 500 or whatever would be better than your profitability, I thought we were talking about mutuality here, right. a mutual life insurance company. Yeah. So, so you're yeah. not going to fabricate surplus. I mean, the, and the options cost something. So, yes, uh, they do. And, and yeah, so all this like smorgasbord. And so I ended up telling them like, yeah, I would have done. Look, you want to expand quickly? Good. I'm all for that. The problems are severe. The more you earn, the greater the problem is with dependency on the bank. He says, I'm all for that. Do you start at <coughs> premium equaling income? No, no. I would have cut the number in half. There would have been, he's a investor type, seasonal, cyclical, uncertain cash flows. I said, so the majority of whatever the premium number would have been would have gone with a company with an extremely flexible PUA rider mm. so that you can control when you pay that PUA, like when the cash flow is actually available. Mm. Right. And if you really wanted to have multiple companies, then okay, we could have and knowing though, going in, knowing one, non-direct recognition, two, knowing the relative uh trade-offs with restrictiveness and inflexibility with the PUAs. And then if you get six months into it and it's like, yeah, this is easy. Let's do it again. Mm-hmm. Fine. We submit the new paperwork, backdate, whatever. Keep the same attained age. It's like, but we roll it out. You roll it out over a period of time. And 
You know, I just remember, and maybe I told you, I was like, you know, had that been the process, because our process, every agent's process is different, right? Yeah. Understanding what goes into these policies, if that's even an objective of the advisory conversation in the first place, is different. And so it's like, had, and maybe, who knows? Maybe I have clients who they go through the process and they still don't fully understand. I don't think that's the case. I think a lot of my people, vast majority, all of them, have a pretty firm understanding, pretty particular understanding of what they own and why and how it's going to play out. Yep. Um, the My point is the concern, the anxiety, I would hope wouldn't have even been there, you know, but it's you mean all of that's beside the, it's like, it's so awkward in the first place. Like if you want to, if you like how I approach things, griggscapitalstrategies.com. If you want to have somebody who's local, Great, in and I practitioner finder, but I don't want to check somebody's work. And you spent more than the uh, more time here explaining that than you did with the guy on the phone call. Thank you. No, this is going to last forever. <laughs> provide ongoing value. Uh, you know, I, I I I appreciate that, and I have no idea why people do what they do. I have no idea why agents do what they do. Well, let's talk about that diversity thing. I need to diversify, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I mean, what, what you, what do you, what's your, you know, James? I'm coming back from my second or my third policy. Should, shouldn't I, shouldn't I get a different company just to be diversified in companies? If we use a different company, it would not be uh, because we're seeking diversity. As a matter of fact, mm. let me see. You diversify when you do not know what to do. Or you do not know what you're doing. You concentrate when you do know what you're doing. Mm. <clears throat> so that's my general opinion and thought process, thoughts, in my experience when it comes to diversity. So, uh, you know, I own, uh, we own, my wife and I own every company that I represent. I put my money in first wherever. I encourage my clients to consider putting money. I'm I'm the guinea pig. I'm the canary in the coal mine, and I think that that's proper and right, and and I'm okay with that. Um, using more than one company is legitimate. I don't want just one policy, you know. So I want to kind of go back to the structure and the natural expansion. Just because um, you get we I Ryan, we talk about structure properly structured. And a legitimate policy on you where you're at does not mean you're never going to buy more policies in the future. Okay. So, uh, and the learning curve, we're all at the beginning when we're exposed to this idea. We're at the front end of the learning curve and it continues, rightly so. We're, we are learning creatures. We're going to learn our whole life. Unless you've reached the arrival syndrome, then God bless you. Um, so that's my comment on plus on diversity. Yeah. And I like the, that there's a trade-off between diversification and concentration. And I was looking for, a, somebody had made a quote about, you know, diversification is basically the, the strategy of ignorance. I mean, if you, do, if you don't is. know what's going on, then you diversify. Exactly. And it's, and it, it, it's a carryover from 
why is ignorance a concern? Well, because you might lose, right? There might be a financial well, and, loss. And, and that goes back to the uh, modern financial construct does not account for the business cycle, does not account right. for funny money. Right. So uh, their strategy to combat that is this balanced portfolio of 60-40. Right. And defensive, defensive, diversified. Exactly. You know, so look, when the when the equities are down, your bond values are going to be up or your fixed positions are going to be up and vice versa and the buffer and all that. It's like, so they have a strategy. It's just not legitimate. Right. <laughs> and, uh, or, I mean, the might, probability of success is... Well, you could, uh, say, you could say technically it does not address two of the most fundamental glaring problems in the economic landscape. It doesn't. It's an elementary defense. Yeah. And we talk about markets. No, please. Every market on the face of this earth is manipulated. Okay. So you want to talk about fundamentals? You know, you want to talk about all that? Mm. How do you use fundamentals with a manipulated market? (laughs) Yeah, it's a legitimate question. I know. So it's very elementary. Well, we're going to do sixty forty or these new target date funds, right? A target date fund is nothing but a balancing of portfolio. The it's algorithmically l- traded that'll go well. <laughs> yeah. The longer, the further away my retirement date is, the more weight I'm going to have in equities. The shorter the duration between now and retirement, I'm going to be heavily more weighted to fixed, you know, bonds, and it's like. Mm. That's pretty. You cannot get any more elementary than that. Yeah. Okay. So they do have they have a strategy. It's just like, oh, okay. <laughs> well, but people would ask Nelson. He's like, yeah, I'm diversified, diversified, and lives insured. Mm-hmm. And there you go. So you know, when I I have that a video on YouTube. It's a five criteria used to evaluate life insurance companies from the perspective of IBC. It's not that long of a title, but that's it's on the YouTube channel. Uh, and it's like once you uh, approach the selection of company, the question of company selection from the perspective of IBC, maximum control, maximum flexibility, maximum unconditional contractual control, right? Don't ask for underwriting to do certain things. Uh, <laughs> and you start to narrow the field down in my view, that forms a hierarchy and there's a preference list and you get as much as you can over time in the most contractually favorable environment. And the fear of loss, you know, life and first of all, these are all companies that have paid a dividend, generated a positive financial surplus for over 100 consecutive years. Think about that. I mean, that's said all the time. Yeah, people jump over it. It, it, Wait, and and I... You've probably heard it before. A hundred years, over a hundred years. Okay, so here we are in 2022. So a hundred years is, you know, 1922. Over a hundred years. Let's go back to the 18, mid 1850s. Mm-hmm. All right, come forward. All right. So we have the panic of uh, 1877, 78, 1901, 1907, 1910, the First World War. Oh, that couldn't happen without a central bank, 1913. (laughs) The First World War, the result of that, a devastated Europe, right? Um, The Panic of 1920, and these were panics. They weren't depressions back then, right? 
um, okay, everybody jumps over 1920, mm-hmm. right? Because there is no uh, government intervention. Mm-hmm. So it's a quick recovery. Hmm. The roaring <laughs> 20s, 1929. Hmm. Okay. The depression that was manipulated, intensified, you know, 29, 30, 33, all the shenanigans that the uh, second great wave of socialism, FDR, did to us and the American public. Um, Okay. So then we go right into uh, World War II, right? And we do the Korean War, the conflict, right? Then uh, the Vietnam War. All of the other, you know, empire expansion activities. Um, okay, the Brenton Woods Agreement. I jumped over that in '44. Okay, coming forward to the Vietnam War. You know, then you're all over the Middle East, um, and then the panics that have happened. You know, the '71. Okay, um, the inflationary period after that. There's an inflation inflationary period in the late 60s. Then we have the 80s. And then we have the 90s, you know, 2000, 2008, 2017. You know, this uh, constructed ordeal that we've all been drugged through the last three years with uh, viruses and shutting down the supply chains and all that. And these companies have paid a dividend <laughs> through every one of those years. What? Tell me where else that's happened. Yeah. That wasn't, you know, a government subsidized, you know, entity. Right. No, don't jump over that dividend being paid. Oh, wait, and the dividend it's uh, classified in the Internal Revenue Code as a return of over or a return of premium. Okay, I've said it many times. I don't care what you classify it as. I don't care. <laughs> Just pay me the dividend right into the PUA that buys more death benefit that earns future dividends and goes immediately to accessible by contract cash value. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I so and look, it's a legitimate question. If you haven't thought of these things before, you want to know about the financial integrity of the. And I get that. Uh, what I'm just, I'm just saying that I don't, I wouldn't say concerns about that are a reason in and of themselves to di- diversify among other companies. I think right. things like contractual favorability should determine the decision. I, and I've told uh, people, you know, if anyone's gonna cause you to diversify it might as well be the company telling you that you can't buy anymore you know? <laughs> uh, anyway so that's the, the i think that's a good response to that diversification question it might be appropriate to have more than one it might not i think the evaluation of the contractual favorability of the terms and conditions of a particular policy should drive that conversation it drives how i choose which company to purchase uh, supported from. by their financial integrity right historically supported by their philosophy mm-hmm. oh it's okay you mean the the home office of every corporate uh institution in america including the life insurance companies have a philosophy you know as dang well as i do yes they do so <clears throat> if i'm going to put a substantial amount of my capital in there i want philosophies that align with mine mm-hmm yeah, very powerful. So how did that, not to throw you off track, but how did that 20-minute, uh, I bet you went over to 
that 20 minute phone call. I want to stay pretty close to 20. Okay. Good job. I'm proud of you. Thanks. Very good. No, it ended there. And that's all right, and so, good. I'm sure he'll be fine. You know, I'm sure okay. it'll all go well. So you got educated a little bit, right? He got educated, and then he filtered that through whomever he's working with. I'm whatever. sure he's so going to go do the same thing that he's going to do anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, he shared your stuff, or they shared your stuff with I'm whomever. Sure. So everybody got educated. Yeah. That's all my, you know, good. Never get that time back. Yeah. So, um, well, that all of, all every bit of this um, speaks to you what I spoke on. Yes. Every bit of it, proper structure, and why it matters, and how it, I believe and see that it's been twisted mm-hmm. since Nelson's work, and then expansion is natural, mm-hmm. very natural, and there's a method, a correct, in my opinion, method that's natural to expand. It, well, we said before that there's no one-size-fits-all correct premium structure for all policies for all people at all times. But you got a layer of resolution higher in your talk and identified a tendency. Like you've said in the past too, and I really like this, and I've shared it with a lot of people, that as the level of income rises, the percentage of it that goes to premium should also increase. Right? That's one of these general tendencies that you can identify in the in a sort of not typical, none of it's typical, but in the form of the of the growth pattern of one's journey into IBC, right? And that's exactly correct. You know, someone paying, someone earning a half a million should be paying a greater percentage of that money than somebody earning fifty grand. Yeah, because you know? they didn't start out earning five hundred either. Right. So it should increase. Well, in with respect to premium structure, you pointed out, and I'm paraphrasing, but that the younger you are, in general the more of your annual premium outlay should go to base. Yes. And the older you are, that may decline as time goes on. But there's a limit even then. Even then. Because you can be, you can pay too low of a base premium. So what went into all that? Like what what led you to isolate that observation? Um, Really, it's over the last 16 years of practicing personally and professionally with my clients. Mm. And then going back, reading, rereading, understanding Nelson's work and becoming your own banker. Looking at what he did below the surface without being a life insurance expert, but you know, history and or experience in the life insurance industry helps. Um, but, and I say it, Nelson's work needs no defense and it is not outdated. Although he had this vision over 40 years ago, and he published the book over 20 years ago, it is still correct. His work and what he did is right. And then, and I pointed out some of the differences between then and now, and their industry changes that we had no control over. Mm -hmm. And in spite of the industry changes and in spite of the noise, because I did spend some time on the noise. Is anyone shocked? (laughs) Um, This is still fundamentally the correct solution to our current financial construct that we're born in. Um, So my observations and experience. Mm -hmm. You know, I've done 90-10 policies. I've done 94-6 policies in the past. Yeah. Well over 10 years ago. I understand what is the result of that is. 
And you called that fragility. It is fragility. The, what did you mean? Well, I know what you meant, but okay. What, explain what you meant when you said All right. that. So the more a policy is contorted today by the use of term riders, blended PUA, the blended PUA is a blend of PUA and term coverage. Um, the more you manipulate a policy to get a higher cash value in the early years, the more fragility you add to that policy. And the fragility that I am generally, specifically speaking of, is the ability to pay a premium is going to diminish um, greatly or completely and the probability of a MEC, modified mm-hmm. endowment contract, occurring is through the roof. And so <clears throat> um, the illustration that, and, and I was pretty heavy on where to start, how to start. I didn't spend a lot of time on the why. I think intuitively the, the, the clients would understand why because I tied it back to yeah. Nelson. Yeah. Okay. Um, the, the, uh, the, like the MEC test, you know, I look at an illustration, it's going to show me a seven pay test premium. For limit, those first seven years. Right, which is a MEC premium. Okay. Um, it's not, and, and if everything on that illustration does not change, then it may not show a MEC. Mm-hmm. Okay. When you use a blended PUA, for example, the dividends are going to go up, the dividends are going to go down, the dividends are dedicated, allocated to pay the increasing cost of the blended term component. All right? So you can't control the dividend, neither can I. It's going to go up and it's going to go down. The term cost is going to go up. Any change to that, there's a potential for a MEC because the seven pay test, the MEC test is a reoccurring test. Mm-hmm. There's a, the the primary, the initial MEC test is right there. The secondary, the tertiary, the 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 future MEC testing that is going to happen is not going to be reflected in that illustration if there's any change made to that illustration. Yeah. One term you've used in the past that I really like is dividend dependence. The less in base, the lower the initial death benefit, the more dividend dependent, Mm -hmm. meaning the more death benefit that's going to come is going to come from an uncertain dividend. And the cash value. Yeah. Yeah. Which in is a, a consideration with respect to the to the MEC because we're yes. there's got to be that necessary relationship and some people don't understand that it could if dividends are higher or if dividends end up being lower in either case there could be a MEC problem because and both are going to happen right because there's not it, it's not about whether the dividend is higher or lower it's about the relationship between the dividend between the death benefit and the cash value and dividends are affecting both the death benefit yes. and the cash value yes and I, I one thing i've pointed out too and I, this is you know, th- like the effect of dividends on death benefit and cash value like the effect of dividend on cash value is level, right? No matter the amount, as time goes on, no matter the amount of death benefit purchased by the dividend, the worth of that new death benefit, the cash value of it, 
is the magnitude of the dividend, right? That's yes. the death benefit yes. is worth what, okay, but as I get older, those PUA premium dollars are buying less and less death benefit. But the, that lesser and lesser death benefit is worth the same. It's worth what was paid for it. And so there's this relative- And it's di- okay to back this up and listen to this two or three times. Yeah, there, there, there's a relative diminishing effect on death benefit yeah. of the dividend yes. with a constant effect on the cash value. Yes. And if the idea of a mech is death benefit gets too close to the cash value there for the mech, then the further out you go and the more of the death benefit that comes from the dividend there is, then the just like you said, the likelihood of something going wrong, be it the cost of the term changes, the cost of the annual terms, the dividend is higher or lower, or you don't pay the PUA that's illustrated or a combination of the three. Or maybe I lower a PUA in one year and raise it the next year. Anything, any of that. All of it. Can result in mech problems. Yeah. And so then the mech solution, right? I don't want a mech. Okay. Uh, Number one, don't pay a premium. That may or may not prevent a mech. Right. Okay. May have to do something more. Buy more term if you can, or continue paying that term rider if you can, which the cost of the term, all term, has an exponential cost. Now, we can buy a levelized term 10, 20, 30 years, no question. Well, why don't they sell a 40 or 50 year term? Hmm. Hmm. Okay. Um, So I'm telling you, this is worth listening to several times but then that's just the example on the blended pua right now let's use a separate standalone term rider added to the policy at raising the death benefit to raise the mech premium to allow a higher pua premium that's either a 10-year term rider a 20-year term rider or a 30-year term rider Mm -hmm. and then that premium is going to go up most likely that term rider is going to come, come off, off of the policy. Therefore, the death benefit drops by that amount, which the lower the base, the more dramatic the drop in death benefit in the future mm-hmm. that shoots the probability of mecking through the roof. Oh, that's so good. I'm telling you. And the further out you go, so the younger you are when you start, right? Because you're going to live longer. The further out you go, the worse that problem becomes. Yes, and you can't you can't change that. that. Yeah, I can't change that. The actuaries Man, at the life <laughs> insurance companies can't change. They know, right? Yeah. But I mean, so therefore, the younger you are, the more to the base there should be. Yes. So that all of those problems are relatively minimized. Right. Man, come on. <laughs> okay. All right. And then I want to I want to kind of I'm, I'm commenting on my talk interspersed through this. Okay, because I want to go back to the but way that's I, what you show, by the way, you showed like examples of families or yeah. people of at different ages with particular policies, premium levels, structures, and they're all different and they're all different. The structures were different. Come on. The policies were different. Right. Every one of them, not one of them were the same by yeah. ratio, duration, premium. And then, of course, I brought in the limits. I'm not trying to overeducate. I just, you know, my whole point was to meet people I had never met before. Okay. And I always love to see my friend, Dr. Paul Cleveland. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then to tie back to what Nelson did 
right, which is still right. It's still relevant. Needs no defense. And I didn't interpret, reimagine, add to anything of Nelson's work. All I did is tie to it. It's just extrapolating and okay. Then know. considering these changes within the industry, the seventy-seven hundred two, the CSO table changes, blah blah blah. Okay, and then you know I show the different uh, generations: Gen one, Gen two, Gen three, Gen four. And I didn't duplicate exactly Nelson's even distribution of age classes. Page seventy-one: Becoming your own banker, uh, whomever you are. After you've read that book a time or two, a second book, you know, Building a Warehouse of Well, How Privatized Banking Really Works, please go back to Nelson's book. Spend time on equipment finance and an even distribution of age classes. Okay? Okay. All right. So I just did the how to start, and I said it, and I believe it because it's true. The limits, our limits are between our ears. All right. So- you got to understand that it, it is what it is, and and change is difficult. I get all that, but you we don't we all shouldn't we all isn't wouldn't it be prudent to expand our limits, to expand our knowledge, to expand out of our comfort zone, right? Okay. Anyway, I tied back into how to start, how to naturally expand through four generations, um, but I wound up with. Uh, and this is a broad overview. You know, I only had one hour and I talked slow. So uh, passive income in retirement, mm-hmm. because that is, uh, and I've said it many times, that is very, uh, uh, it's just lacking in the infinite banking footprint. How do you take passive income? Mm-hmm. And so I touched on that and I showed, and I'm going to use this in, in the like this is foundational work for the book that I am writing. Put it out there. Put, yeah, it, out put there. it out there. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And I showed the passive income. And you know, while I was putting the talk together, you know, I get all kinds of emails and, and all this information, like everyone, you know, we're bombarded and a lot of mine is financial information that comes in and of course, history and, you know, philosophy and doctrine. And okay. Um, I, and I took the article with me. And it was a 4% rule, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? And the 4% rule is if you have a million-dollar portfolio at retirement, how much can you draw down and not go broke? It's called the 4% rule. It's been out since the 80s and 90s. And, and all of the big you know, Ivy League schools have written papers, and all the economists have written papers, and then they rewrite them. It goes from 4% whenever the markets are booming, and then you'll have a great article. I mean, and, and documented. I mean, these are these are not just you know drive-by commentaries, mm-hmm. okay? And when the market, you know, is correcting, maybe 3%. Well, this article was uh, rethinking the 4% rule. Two economists wrote it. Um, and it should be more more successful. The higher probability of success should be 1.9. So if you have a million-dollar portfolio at retirement, the drawdown rate should be 1.9, and you won't go broke. With modern life expectancy, Right. Okay, and so you just do some calculations. A 4% real million dollars, you could earn $40,000 in income that's taxable. God bless you. You better have a couple of millions stacked up, yeah. right? The business cycle still flowing. Yeah. Uh, inflation yeah. crushing. Okay. Uh, and wait, when is that going to change? Hmm. Mm-hmm. It's not going to change. So if you don't do something, who will? Okay, mm-hmm. all right. Mm-hmm. And then the uh, 3% rule. Uh, okay, well, now you get to enjoy thirty grand. This this article 
1.9%. I get to enjoy $19,000 of taxable income if I have a million dollars in retirement, and I'm going to be happy with that. You better have multiple millions, yeah, right? Yeah. And so I just took the uh, the uh, the cases that I built, mm-hmm. and I took great joy in not showing a single illustration. Mm-hmm. Okay, but I think I conveyed what I was trying to convey, um, and, and I took the cases, uh, the second generation, middle aged generation, and took them through how to naturally start, how to expand. But I took them through passive income to mm-hmm. passive income, and you know they had over a million dollars, and they didn't start at twenty. I think they were at forty five when they started. Mm. All right, and they had over a million dollars, but I didn't show income until seventy mm-hmm. because life expectancy is increasing. But I, I it demonstrated that they could enjoy. Without any financing, you know what I mean? Okay. Without doing anything, paying a premium. Paying a premium. And then, but I did touch on how to finance with that. The things that they were already doing. Yeah. Nothing, but nothing, no, no cash all, flow investment. Yeah, no, yeah. none of that. Right. And But if they did any of that and it was successful, it right. would just be better. Yeah. A $70,000 tax-free income. Well, hell, that's a 7% rule. Isn't <laughs> that number's bigger than that number. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And so, and then, you know, and I appreciate the prompt, you know, because, you know, I mean, if, you know, you get on up there, you're speaking in front of these people that, that you love and you care about, and, but, you know, I'm self critical and, mm-hmm. you know, you get kind of focused and, uh, don't realize how bad the AB situation is, <laughs> whatever else is going on. Um, I mean, uh, and so I appreciate your prompt on closing remarks. Right. Yeah. Because uh, then I brought up page 38, right, which was so I felt like appropriate, you know, from Nelson, page 38, becoming your own banker, this idea that you should maybe get together with like minded people, some that have more experience than others, a broad, diverse range of experience. Because we all have a tendency to feel like the Lone Ranger. Mm-hmm. And we used to give out Lone Ranger awards. Mm-hmm. You know, this was a first live, client-only, banking with life. But, you know, I, we've done seminars and events for years. Um, and I say it because I'm very proud of it. Looking back, 27 events in one year. Jeez. And that was just Julie and I and Carol. Yeah, that's I'm like a- recovered from the last one. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, the value of getting together and and kind of going back to the bases, the connection with Nelson coming forward, and and then of course I was building up to putting for for formulating the talk, which you know I've been thinking about this from for months, right? right. What what do I want to say? What do I think needs to be heard with all of these people at different levels, different income, different parts of the country, geographical, you know, I mean, oh my gosh, it was beautiful. Um, And I think I said what I wanted to say, but I was concerned that, you know, is it being too simplistic? You know, is it being too broad? Um, Then I'm reassuring myself that, yep, this is what I want to say. This is what I think needs to be heard. And we're going to do more events and it's going to be built upon you know, idea upon idea, concept upon concept, precept upon precept. Yeah. So if I could go so far to say, I think sometimes you think things that you have to say are simple 
and you critic you self criticize them as being simple, but then to me it's like no, there's so much wisdom in that. It actually is the opposite. It needs to be unpacked to demonstrate yeah. not the complexity, but just to demonstrate everything that's implied or embedded in what could be misconstrued as simple. Like that's why like the idea I, I appreciate that. Well, I'm being because like the idea that there should there's a spectrum that everything else equal the younger you are the more there should be to the base the older you are there's you can have there can be less within limits and then the reasons why like what what it means for there to be greater fragility and greater dividend dependence mm -hmm. and how you how you can complicate that with all sorts of other manipulations blended term what have you I mean, that's got to be unpacked. I mean, like yeah. to, uh, to say, to just say that, that at the outset, it's like, oh, okay, well, yeah, I mean, I, it's simple in the sense that I can understand that, but to uncover the reasoning behind it, it's like, first of all, nobody else is saying any of that. And second, it's like that. Yes. Like that makes complete sense. And that is original and insightful. Uh, and I, should I be really appreciate out. that. It's like <clears throat> the, uh, properly structured you hear that i i've said it i say it and i'm almost tired of hearing it uh, yeah <clears throat> okay everybody says properly what does that mean so unpacking like uh you know i was talking with the uh, justin the av ninjas uh justin and josh because look we get back you know we're all wiped out I mean, it was, I'll go to the after party. I was just going to say hi to the people that I didn't get to say hi to. And, um, I wound up closing the place down. We stayed for a long time. <laughs> I, know, was, it was I was fun. Like, I was so exhausted. I'm like, I, I tell my mom who flew in from California, who works with me. And it's like, I got an hour and we're going, I got an hour drive back to Rockwell. And it seems like two and a half hours. <laughs> yeah, got back and crashed. <laughs> right. Slept late. Got an IV the next day. <laughs> you know, um, Fort Worth view, you know, that was a hotel, not quite a rooftop, but like a rooftop. Rooftop, uh, yeah. Okay. In the stockyards. Yeah, looking down on the stockyards, looking at the skyline of Fort Worth, you know, which I'm a Fort Worth boy. Yeah, okay. and good job, Julie, for picking the location. Yeah. I, that was, it was nice. Good job, Jules. But the, uh, talking with Justin, you know, we're, because we get back and, you know, we're all wiped out and I'm telling you, uh, recovering from an AV curveball that straight up worst curveball in front of a room full of people, yeah, under pressure, and it, I I know he was sweating on the inside, but boy, you couldn't tell it looking on the outside. So good job again, Justin. Um, we come back, we're recovering, right, and we're like, what do we do right? What could we do better? What do we learn? You know, how can we, you know, make the next one better? Uh, and him and I were talking. And uh, and we we're talking about how many speakers, you know, how many, like, speaking slots could there be in a day without wearing everybody out and still, you know, make it informative and valuable. And, and he said it himself. It's like he thought each of the speakers could have gone an hour and a half, two hours. Mm. You know, and, and, and I know you, and I know Dr. Paul Cleveland as well, and I know myself. I mean, I can talk for talk hours. for the whole day. Yeah. Yeah, all day. So this idea of unpacking will and is happening. 
Yeah, and people ask, you know, if if there was if there'd be another one, you know, would you do the same stuff? And it's like, no. I mean, I can't. It really the idea of me just repeating myself bothers me, and so it's got to be new. It's got to be fresh. I mean, not totally out of whole cloth, but it it should naturally build. I mean, then imagine this: the building up progressively, event after event, of this library of client only material that has just built and built and built i mean come on <laughs> it makes me want to become a client <laughs> and well, let me tell you, uh, these people are cool people these yeah. are not you know i mean these are cool interesting creative getting it done salt of the earth people yeah yeah to be paying a big old bunch of life insurance premium to get on a flight to come to texas to meet a bunch of strangers i mean you you're you got to be a, well there's that but i mean individually what they're actually doing you know restaurant owners or whatever yep okay washmaker uh, artists yeah you name it models yeah you know <laughs> they're, they're look there's some gq looking men there <laughs> like you know and not to mention the women oh my god i mean i'm just saying <laughs> professors yes several professors mm-hmm. economists cpas medical professionals yep. i mean businessmen yeah and just, they're what they are doing individually and then what they do on their their free time you know because i'm friends with them on facebook they're creative mountain climbers you know scaling mountains and flying hang gliding whatever it is they do i mean pretty dang creative people yeah, yeah. so yeah and they took the time spent the money to fly yeah right and so they could have picked somebody off the practitioner program across the street and didn't have, wouldn't have to. And, of course, they don't have to. I mean, we have an open-door policy. You can fly in here anytime and sit right here. I'm kidding. Um, yeah. I'm just saying there's a lot of value. I had fun. Can't wait to do it again. And it will be built upon uh, work will be added to. And now, I like repeating certain things, I think, uh, repetition is good um, when it's good but to say the same thing over and over or to present no no there's an expansion mm-hmm. right because this is what we're all doing and what we all want to do I want to know what you're doing you know if it's good and you're willing to share right because right? iron sharpens iron you know I want to know I want them to share with each other what they're doing right. and why and what their thought process is and to be able to do that in modern terminology, in a safe environment. <laughs> <laughs> a safe space for IBC people. <laughs> oh, jeez. That's what we should have called it, you know, Banking with Life live at the garden, you know, botanical garden rather than Madison Square Garden. Yeah, well, yeah. I'm glad you brought it at the end, brought it back to Nelson. I mean, this really is part of IBC. There's a, commu- there's a necessary community aspect of coming together, of talking with one another, of sharing. There's just regular old, regular, nothing regular about it, but fellowship, just hanging out, and then also edification and deeper conviction and equipping. I mean, a big part of what I wanted to convey is that there's, a, there's an economic uh, armor to these ideas. You know, this this idea that you're going to go online and feel bullied or the people who are laughing or poking fun because you're paying a big old premium and the worst place you could ever put money. It's like, no. Or you pay no. the big high base premium. Right. Or whatever. Yeah. No. There are legit, there are reasons for taking this approach 
yes, they need to be better and progressively better and more well argued over time and articulated over yeah. time. But that's the reason to come together to continue to improve. Uh, and it there's a there's a preference granted to current clients, to people who have taken action and demonstrated that they're going to live their financial lives this way. So they get client only events. Yeah. Well, I, I think that's important because, you know, without patronizing, you know, uh, I think that our clients already get things that they couldn't get elsewhere. Yeah. Um, like this team, unbelievable. Um, our process, we do, it's a beautiful process. In my opinion, we're always seeking to improve it. Um, and they get that access to the team, to me. Um, I mean, that's valuable. But then, but then that additional other people that are just like there's so there's not a life insurance agent or an advisor yeah, that, that um, is trying to uh, do anything other than educate mm-hmm. so you know yeah i want a lot more of that well what, I, what i'll say too the last thing i'll say is that it gives me the opportunity to push myself too right to crystallize the the things that are on my mind into particular you know articulated thought to then share with others it's a great opportunity to combat the arrival syndrome on all fronts you know for me for the clients to continually push back those frontiers it's it's humbling you you go speak to 100 people yeah right? you better know that what are you smart people yeah. they're intelligent people um yeah, very humbling. It's like we're speaking to 9,000 now, potentially, or 100, whatever. But, but it's different, right? So you're behind the lens, right? It's not like you're in the room right there. Yeah, a little more intense the right there. <laughs> so does that mean you're hungry? It's like that's the last thing you're going to say. You got to go eat. Yeah, or, I mean, hour yeah. and 40. So I feel that's a good recap. I, I think it was. Yeah. And uh, yeah, thanks for listening. I had fun. Yeah, me too. Thanks, y'all. See you next time. Thank you for joining us on the Banking with Life podcast. If you're watching on YouTube, make sure to like and subscribe and click on that little notification bell. Otherwise, join us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher for weekly content. 